If 2023 was the year of unpredictability, speed will be the hallmark of 2024. Life comes at us fast, says Tom Standage, deputy editor of The Economist magazine and editor of the annual forward-looking special edition. It's called The World Ahead in 2024, and each year for the past several years we've touched base with Tom and his team to talk about the trends and developments that The Economist foresees in a world that is changing at mind-boggling speed. Editor of The World Ahead in 2024, Tom Standage, joins me now. Hello. Hello. It's good to be here again. Uh, Great to talk to you. And uh, first up a bouquet, you said that 2023 would be a year of unpredictability. You pretty much got that right, didn't you? Yes, I think the main thing we got wrong was on the economy. We were quite pessimistic about um, the economy in America and in Europe and in Britain. We said, said there'd be recessions all over the place, and that hasn't actually happened. So, um, but, but apart from that, we had a pretty good year, I think. <laughs> and if 2024 is the year of speed, um, we should probably note that speed and stability don't usually go hand in hand. Well, I think there's a lot of things that are changing very fast. So technology is moving very fast. Climate change seems to be accelerating. And there's also a sense that the kind of geopolitical stability um, that, relatively speaking, we've had for the last 30 years, people have called it a holiday from history. And we now realise that actually things were pretty quiet on the geopolitical (laughs) front. For quite a long time and um and now that really does all seem to be coming apart and so um, that's changing very rapidly as well you know that more than half the people on the planet will be holding elections this year voterama you call it however yeah. it may not actually be a triumph for democracy no indeed so we think this is the first time in history where more than half the population of the world are living in countries that are holding national elections Mm. this year. So we added it all up. We think it's about 75 national elections. So it's not just elections for, you know, presidents and parliaments and prime ministers. It's also when you have a national election where everyone in the country is allowed to vote for something. So, for example, in Brazil and Turkey, they've got municipal elections, local elections across the whole country simultaneously. In the European Union, there's the um, EU parliament elections. And that means that all of the EU countries countries are having national elections um, to to vote for that parliament. So if you add all of those up, you get 4.2 billion people are living in countries where there's one of these national elections. And the global population is 8.1 billion. So that means we're just above the the halfway mark. And so you could say this is a triumph for democracy. But in practice, I think what's, what's happening already is that we're looking at these various elections happening around the world and saying, well, you know, there's there's more to democracy than voting. And uh, so they just had an election in Bangladesh, for example, at the beginning of the year. The um, the opposition boycotted the election because essentially the government's not allowing them to, you know, the freedom to campaign and that kind of thing. Then we had the election in Taiwan. That was a much, you know, that was a free and fair election, but that has enormous geopolitical implications. Then we've got the uh, the next big one coming up is the Russian election in, in March. I can tell you the election of that Sorry, I can tell you the result of that right now, which is that obviously Vladimir Putin's going to win. So you can see that all these different elections, some of them are free and fair and can actually, you know, the people get to choose their leaders and other elections not so free and fair. And it's all a bit of a farce. And so I think um, if you add it all up, it's going to be a year where we really kind of look at democracy and say, well, hang on a minute. Is it just a matter of everyone voting and is it just a charade or do they really have the opportunity to change 
what's happening in their country. And in some elections, that's true. In Britain, we're going to have an election later this year, and I think we're going to chuck the government out. And that's the kind of hallmark of democracy. If you don't like the government, you can chuck them out. Yeah. Um, but that's not true in, in, in every country. And of course, the big one is the US election in November, which is going to have global implications. Yeah, I was going to ask you if, if American democracy can survive, because it is, in many ways, as you know, a flawed democracy. It is. So we, we give um, all these democracies a score out of 10 at The Economist. And um, this is called the Democracy Index. And uh, we have a big chart where we where we show this and you can sort of see where your country ranks on this. And um, Britain counts as a full democracy, which is you know one of the hallmarks is you really can vote and chuck out the, the government if you want to. Both um, the biggest democracy in the world and the second biggest uh, India and the United States are having elections this year, and we count both of those as flawed democracies, which is the next step down. Um, in India, the problem is that there's not really freedom of the press, and mm. there's quite a lot of, um, you know, the opposition leaders been put in jail and you know that kind of thing. So it, it's it's really not a uh, a situation where there's really full freedom to campaign and express your views. And in the US, the problem is slightly different. There's been a sort of wholesale loss of confidence in the whole democratic system. Both both the Republican side and the Democratic side think that the other side is rigging it. And it's, all, <laughs> it's all a scam and it's all a fraud and you can't you know, trust what's going on. Um, and then at the same time, you've got this kind of gridlock that um, very few bills have actually come through Congress recently. Um, it's really hard to get anything done. And so, again, that's a sort of sign that the democracy is not working properly. Um, and that, that, that is really the big test, I think, for this year. Can America... Um, can American democracy um, get through this year? Because Donald Trump's made it pretty clear that um, if he does win the election, then he wants to dismantle an awful lot of the things that stopped him doing what he wanted to do last time around. And, um, you know, he wants to put his own people in to the Department of Justice and and essentially sue all of his enemies. And he wants to get rid of what he calls the deep state, which means what most, I think, people would say, well, that's the sort of usual checks and balances you get in a in a democracy to stop a president from doing whatever the hell they want to. So um, that really is the big question for this year. How's that going to go? Um, will, will American democracy survive that? And what's the implication going to be for the rest of the world? Because the consequences really are global. Yeah, I haven't checked, but I suspect that at the beginning of 2016, the economists didn't believe Trump would win. No, no one really did. It's sort of the opposite this time. He's got the inside running he's polling ahead in the key states and um exactly in those swing states and it is going to come down to those swing states and that's the that's the really worrying thing so um so when we went to press in november we we thought he had a one in three chance of winning and we think it's now down to a one in two it really is a coin toss and u.s elections are very very close they come down to a few tens of thousands of voters in a few swing states so and that's what we saw last time it would have been just forty thousand votes if they'd been in the other column then Trump would have won in, in 2020. So, and that was why he was ringing people up and saying, you know, you need to find me some votes, this sort of thing. <laughs> the, the, it, it really is on a, on a knife edge. And that's what makes this very hard to predict. But it's also cast a shadow over this whole year because um, that's the biggest unresolved question in geopolitics. And uh, everyone is sort of trying to Trump-proof whatever they're, whatever they're doing and trying to find ways to have insurance policies in case he wins. But it's very difficult to know what's going to happen. Yes, and if listeners are wondering, well, why are you guys talking about America so much? You point out that um, actually the fortunes of the world do in a lot of ways depend on America. You write that Vladimir Putin's fate, for example, would depend more on American voters than Russian ones. It's a pretty strange position for America to be in. It is, but that's because we know that 
Trump would definitely pull the plug on any support for Ukraine. And uh, that's obviously exactly what what Putin wants. But it's, it's a whole load of things. I mean, he would uh, he would pull America out of the uh, the climate agreements again. Uh, he wants to, it seems, pull out of NATO. So Europe would have to go in alone on security and would have to support Ukraine on its own. And I think the really big question is what's going to happen um, with Taiwan. And um, that seems kind of theoretical, I suppose, at the moment. Taiwan's had its election. It's elected William Lai, who is a more independence-leaning candidate. I don't think anyone's expecting a Chinese invasion of Taiwan this year. But there is this theory that the the sort of logical time for China to make that move is the late 2020s, because America is putting a lot of investment into the Indo-Pacific, but that's not really going to bear fruit until the 2030s. So if you're China, you're thinking, well, maybe we should move before that. Mm. And that means that whoever is elected president at the end of this year in the US could be the president who is in the White House in the event of a conflict over Taiwan and potentially a war between America and China and and whether America would, would go and support Taiwan. And we honestly don't know where Donald Trump stands on this. On the one hand, he wants to be strong and he wants to be tough on China. And on the other hand, he's, you know, he's looked at America's allies in Asia and said, well, are they paying us for this for this support, this military protection we give them? Why aren't they? It's like a sort of mafia protection racket is the way he, he sees it. Hmm. And um, and so you could just imagine him saying, well, Taiwan, it's a little island. No one's ever really heard of it. Who cares what happens? Maybe we should do a deal with China. We'll let them take Taiwan. And then as long as they buy lots of American soybeans or something, you know, uh-huh. that we should do a deal. He's very transactional. So we honestly don't know what he would do. And I think that's the massive problem with the prospect of him coming back, that there are two very different worlds that we could find ourselves in in 2025, depending on whether he wins or not. I spoke to Dr. Hannah Ritchie yesterday. She's a data scientist at Oxford, and she describes herself as an urgent optimist when it comes to climate change. You see something slightly different. Um, You, like her, see this big drive for clean energy. Um, But note that we may be replacing one problem with another in the quest for the resources we need to produce clean energy, like lithium. Well, sort of. I'm an optimist about this too. I think that um, I think that the trend is that uh, technology to address climate change is actually developing faster than most people expect it to, and the deployment of solar energy is happening much faster than people expect. So, yeah, I think ultimately climate change gets sorted by technology developing rapidly, um, as much as it is sorted by you know policy makers changing changing rules. So I think you need a bit of both of those, but I think it's the technology um, that's going to surprise us on the upside. But I think uh, the theme that I'm trying to identify for this year is this shift from thinking about energy resources as where is the oil and gas and have we got enough access to the oil and gas? We're now shifting to this where is the lithium, where is the nickel, where is the copper Uh, Whereas the manganese and the rare earth elements and the cobalt um, and they're in very, very different places from the from the oil and gas. And a lot of them are in the global south and they are in countries that are not necessarily aligned with either the American or the uh, Chinese bloc in the new Cold War that we now seem to be finding ourselves in. So I know there's quite a lot of lithium in Australia, for example, and then there's a whole load in Chile. I think people people know about that. But it turns out that Ghana is just opening a lithium mine, a huge amount of lithium has just been found in the US. Nickel, well, that's sort of New Caledonia, 
and uh, and Indonesia. Um, so it's a very, very different map from sort of, you know, the thing we want is in the Middle East. And so we need to pay attention to the politics of the Middle East um, because it you know it has a direct impact on the on the price of gas. And it's not just that the resources are in a different place. It's also that the map is changing because new discoveries are being made all the time. And then also the, the changes in technology mean that the amount of those resources we need and the, and the resources, the specific ones that we need can also change. So there's been a lot of excitement in recent months about sodium batteries where you use sodium instead of lithium. And they're not quite as light um, as the lithium batteries, but they do seem to be pretty good. And you could use them for, for some of the things that we use lithium batteries for. And sodium is far more abundant than, than lithium. So if those batteries you know, really take off, then lithium is suddenly much less of a constraint than we thought it was. So, and, and then another thing that may happen in 2024 is the beginning of deep sea mining. And it may be that actually some of the rare earth elements that we need um, and some of the metals that we need are most easily found on the seabed. And that might actually be a less environmentally damaging way of finding them than, say, digging up nickel in, in Indonesia, which involves quite a lot of rainforest destruction. So um, it's a moving target in lots of ways. And I think we all need to sort of adjust the map that we have in our heads of where the energy resources that we, that we need in the coming decades are and, and what they are. I'm speaking to Tom Standage. He's editor of The World Ahead in 2024. It's The Economist magazine's annual look ahead uh, at, the, um, at the coming year. And we better talk about AI. Tom, uh, you say the debate will continue whether it poses an existential risk. Actually, you feel that may be a decoy. Yeah, I think the whole kind of debate about existential risk and kind of are the killer robots going to come and kill us all mm-hmm. um, yeah, I think I think that's kind of rather hijacked the conversation in 2023. So I'm I'm hoping that the conversation will get a bit more realistic in 2024. And I think if you look at the tech bros like Sam Altman and um, and Elon Musk and people like that, I think they have a sort of reason to talk about um, to talk up the the existential risk, the the kind of killer robots that is this AI going to wipe us all out angle because that's quite a you know theoretical risk in the future, and they're saying we need a sort of IAEA, which is the body that um, regulates nuclear weapons around the world. We mm. need something like that. We need a kind of UN mm. body for, for, and this is all very convenient for them because that will take years to set up. <laughs> and in the meantime, nobody will be paying attention to the fact that these um, AI systems have got real problems right now that need to be addressed, like bias and discrimination and the fact that they're trained on data that in many cases has just essentially been stolen um, and privacy and all of these kinds of things. So it's a kind of, you know, oh, never mind, never mind the kind of the fact that this facial recognition system is racist. Look over there, there could be killer robots. Yeah. So I think it's a, I think it's a bit of a decoy. Um, and uh, and so that's, that's why I think, um, you know, uh, it's a good thing that the regulators around the world, um, in, in Europe, in, in America, in Australia, in, in China, in various parts of the world, are all sort of focusing on how do we make rules for these systems? And I think very, you know, it's a good thing. Rightly, they are focusing on the the questions, the real problems that are already arising with existing systems now, like bias and discrimination and, and, and so forth. Um, and that's really where the regulators need to be focusing, not on the on the theoretical future risk of, of killer robots, and and so I, you know, I'm I'm hoping that the uh, that the conversation moves on a bit from that. The other thing I think that where we're going to see a bit more realism in AI this year is that we've had a lot of companies trying AI out and doing pilots and experiments, and I think we're going to see a lot more deployment this year. And the main place where 
AI in its current form is really useful is that it's a, an enormous help if you're a programmer, you're writing software, um, having a sidekick that can that can help you write the code uh, it does seem to provide an enormous boost. And I think that's really good because uh, I don't know about you, but you know you expect Netflix and Amazon and, and big websites like that to work really well, but your bank or your government may not have a website or an app that works quite as reliably. Yeah. Um, and this is because those big tech companies hoover up all of the best engineers. Um, and if uh, if AI can help the 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 not so great programmers, and I count myself as one of them, <laughs> you know, I I did computer science years ago, and I've been doing some programming again in recent months and I, I found that you know it's amazing how much help these uh, these systems can provide you with um so if, if that can help the sort of second rate programmers like me produce uh, produce better code then that's going to be good for everyone because it's going to mean that digital products everywhere get better a lot more quickly okay switching to something lighter might this be the end of superhero movies dominating the box office well i think we're starting to see that already that the um the domination of the the Marvel franchises is is going down. But I think um, it's a bit of a litmus test this year. We've got various superhero movies come, coming out. Um, 2022 was interesting because we had, sorry, 2023 was interesting because we had, um, we had Barbie and we had Oppenheimer, which were not, you know, franchises. They weren't sequels. Uh, who knows? Maybe they'll find a way to do Oppenheimer too, but I, I, I find it unlikely. Um, and so it was, you know, was that a special case? Was that a one-off? Or has there been a sort of permanent loss of enthusiasm for the Marvel approach where you have these multi-year sequences of, of movies? And so I think this this year is going to be a, a, a test for that because we have a, a bunch of superhero sequels coming out, but we also have a bunch of standalone movies coming out. So we'll, we'll see who comes out on top. Uh, asking on behalf of people like me who have a mortgage, uh, have we seen the end of inflation? The economic indicators look good, but then, uh, of course, um, global events tend to have uh, quite a big impact on things like the price of food, right? Yes, absolutely. So I think the you know the general view until a few months ago was that inflation was on the way down and that we would see interest rates starting to come down in 2024. The thing that has rather upset that has been disruption in the Red Sea and the fact that container ships and tankers going through the Red Sea, you know, having missiles fired at them. Um, that means you've got a lot more shipping going going from China around the bottom of Africa. And this is increasing the the uh, the cost of freight. Um, and that is going to be inflationary. That is going to add add you know cost for for people in, in some parts of the world. And it's pushing pushing up shipping rates generally. So um so that is definitely an inflationary pressure. I think most people, if you talk to ec economists or you talk to people in shipping, they say this is a smaller effect than what we saw with the pandemic or what we saw with the war in Ukraine, both of which were, you know, the outbreak of the war very unexpectedly. Um had a big impact on on energy prices and that was very inflationary so most people say this is um material and it will mean that interest rates don't come down quite as quickly as we expect but it's not as big a shock as those those other ones so i think by the end of this year we will we will see interest rates coming down but it's not going to happen quite as quickly as we might have thought six months ago okay so ai international conflicts all sorts of other problems, the quest for resources. Perhaps, Tom, perhaps the 2024 Paris Olympics will unite the world. Well, this is the thing. I've, I've been looking for something kind of inspiring and optimistic about the coming year. And I have to say there really aren't an awful lot of things to, to choose from. But um, the Olympics is one of those things that, that can make even 
jaded old cynics like me uh, <laughs> sort of, you know, put that aside and say, actually, it's really cool to see that as a planet, we can, we can, and as a, you know, the human race, we can get all the people who are best at particular athletic disciplines and we can get them together in one place and say, let's see who's best. Um, so I'd really like that to be the case. But I think this Olympics, um, as with uh, many previous Olympics, is going to be overshadowed by political arguments, particularly in this case about the participation of athletes from Russia and Belarus and whether they should be, you know, what flag they should compete under. And we've seen this before where, you know, they they're from Russia, but they're not really from Russia. And we all know that, the, the you know, even though it's not the Russian flag, we know it's really Russia anyway. And so I think uh, I fear that this is already turning into a uh, a political argument and that will that will overshadow this but it would be great because you know paris has had a had a tough time and um notre dame after that terrible fire has been restored and the the city is you know feeling much more upbeat and optimistic and so it would it would be great if that was uh something that sort of spread to the rest of the world but i think um sort of optimism and unity is going to be in short supply in 2024 Tom, you and the team have done a fantastic job of this, as always. Thank you for giving us the highlights, and we look forward to chatting in 2025. And we'll know, of course, what's happened in America by then. That's yeah. the big thing. Oh, yeah, gosh. I look forward to it. Speak to you then. Fantastic. Thanks, Tom. That's Tom Standage, who is the editor of The World Ahead in 2024 by The Economist magazine, which is available in newsstands.